There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. When the possibility of talking about Battersea Power Station came up, it made me realise how long it's been since I've been down to that part of town and also how little I actually know about what's going on down there. I'm pretty sure the last I heard was it was falling in on itself and there was a lot of Malaysian investment. But really, it had slipped off my radar. So I'm going to be setting that right today and finding out why its plight has been escaping my attention. A 2017 hello to uh, Donna Diebel, who enjoyed the worst of 2016 podcast. Greetings to our own Rory Anderson, who provides the music at Howling Sea on Twitter. He's got a new London Songs podcast. If you fancy wrapping your ears around that, just go ahead and Google songs from the Howling Sea. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily advise googling his name unless you're a specialist there are a lot of surprising consonants in there and i'm tempted to give a special first of its kind londonist out loud award to dominic stevenson fantastical dom on twitter because he may have found a fact inspired by a quiz last week but i think we can i think we can only say that his fact is uh, is only really semi-verified at the moment indeed it has had the uh, the eyes of an expert upon it but I'm cautious about going definitive just yet. This isn't BuzzFeed, you know. The fact he thinks he's uncovered is that Highgate Tube Station is the only one with exit doors at the top of an escalator. And there's been some argy-bargy about this. Tube Boy 1 has pointed out that Burnt Oak and Edgware both have exit doors, but not at the top of escalators. Jeff Marshall, who's held a Guinness record, has visited every tube station, can't remember ever seeing such a thing anywhere else. But then would he not have been just passing through a lot of the stations? I don't know. So, listener, if by any chance you know of a, another tube station, not Highgate, that has a, an exit door at the top of an escalator... Um, I don't want to pop Dominic's bubble, but facts are facts. And uh, facts have been in in fairly short supply, actually. There's been a lot of hyperbole and rumour and promises around the future of Battersea Power Station. And remarkably, really nobody's put together a detailed analysis of what's been going on and where it's all headed. Until a new book just recently published, Up in Smoke. And we're off to meet its author. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, step out me. See to the airland and see some creep, some saw. Hello, hello, 
from a bridge in an industrial part of town. Well, that's what it feels like anyway. Even the sky is gunmetal grey. It feels like the whole place is made out of iron and steel. I think it's fair to say I'm probably in the biggest building site in London right now, and I include Collindale in that list. I thought a walk along the attractive-sounding Nine Elms Lane would be a, a pleasant proposition, but in fact, buildings going up all around us, and indeed one building coming up for the second time, just over there, Battersea Power Station. It's chimneys, some of them missing, but present and correct next to me, Peter Watts, author of Up in Smoke, which is all about... Battersea Power Station and its uh, history and its futures. Hi, Peter. Hello there. So, what's the story? What are we looking at, first of all? Obviously, Battersea Power Station over there, but if anybody's got in mind the four chimney-stacked icon of London and of uh, Pink Floyd's album cover fame, they'd be sorely disappointed. Yes, yeah, at the moment, so we've got, we got, one, we got one full erect chimney and we've got, what, uh, a third and then, what, two-thirds of a chimney and then one's completely missing. At the moment, they are replacing them. They're rebuilding them. The old, the old ones were rotten, and they came down what last year, and uh, now they're rebuilding them. We just realised we're next to Battersea Cats and Dogs Home as well, and actually, it does remind me a little bit of some of those dogs who've lost a leg in an accident and are sitting in their cages, looking a bit sorry for themselves. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, the funny thing about it is that we, we all think of Battersea Power Station as having four chimneys, but it had two for the first sort of uh, what twenty years of its life. Um, and it, it only had the fourth chimney um, went up in 1955. So that was, what, 25 years after it had been opened. Right, all through the Second World War. If, uh, well, if anybody does a, a film depiction of the Second World War in London and they show all four chimney stacks, then they've got it wrong. There's just three at the time. Absolutely, it's got three. And, and you look at aerial pictures of it, it just looks so strange. It just looks so bizarre without that sort of symmetry that we just take for granted. Should we talk about that symmetrical design? Or do we, do we need to go further back before we get into the history of... Well, we, we can start wherever you like. I mean, um, where, where should we begin? This site was once a waterworks, and it was um, it was abandoned. It was the most pollute, one of the most polluted waterworks in London. It was abandoned. They decided this would be the perfect site to build um, a huge power station. At the time, London consisted of dozens and dozens of very small power stations. But they wanted to build one, one super power station, and this is the site they chose. Is, is that because they'd essentially given up on the area? They were abandoning it to being further polluted, or, or was this regarded as somehow an improvement? Well, the whole area was incredibly industrial. You know, there, there were factories all around the river here, so it was in keeping, I guess, with the style of the area. It did cause major problems because, although you can't really tell from here, obviously, but, you know, we are only about a mile from Westminster, across the other side of the river, and from Chelsea's even closer, and those... Um, uh, the residents there were very concerned at the idea of a polluting uh, monster appearing on the Thames right opposite them. And that was the reason Giles Gilbert Scott, the architect, was brought in in 1930, mainly to um, ensure that the, the power station that being built was going to be uh, an attractive-looking one. It strikes me from what you said that the people of Chelsea wanted to have their cake and eat it because the power from this place was looking after them in some way, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They argued that, well, you know, why can't it be built further out of town and the power sort of pumped in from the suburbs? And at the time, that, that didn't make economic sense. It was cheaper to bring the coal along the river to the power station and to bring the electricity from the suburbs into the centre. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that was the cost decision for it, for it to be done. And that's why there were power stations all across the river. There was one, there was one across the river at Fulham. There was... Um, Greenwich. Uh, Greenwich. There was Lotts Road also nearby. So, you know... and. It, it, it was the obvious reason. And actually, uh, the section of the book that deals with how 
the power was transmitted from these various, often really micro power generating places is kind of amusing. It's uh, cables being strung between roofs of places. Maybe it's a good point for a diversion off to that art gallery basement. Yeah, well, it all began in an art gallery in um, in where was it? It was in Bloomsbury. I can't remember now. And that, that was that was where the first sort of power station in London appeared. What, what um, sort of year are we talking now? Oh, I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> I can't remember. 18, 1870s, 1880s is, is what I will say about that. Thomas Edison was around. He was involved. He built, he built the first sort of uh, purpose-built power station in the whole world, and that was in London. That was in Hoburn. But L- London, sort of, although it was quite quick to get at the beginning of electricity and the electrical revolution, it then got very, very nervous. And there were lots of laws about digging up streets. There were lots of laws about... And there were lots of laws getting in the way of people putting together a really sensible integrated power structure which is why all these very small power stations appeared often which used completely different voltages you know that they, they just didn't they, they didn't work very well you know they, and, and it was an incredibly complicated system people would they, they, you know there was records of people buying a toaster and then moving two streets and not working wherever they'd gone to and obviously as the world and as london especially became more and more electrified um, it was being left behind by the major cities like paris and berlin and and especially in the north america the idea of this compartmentalization or this fragmentation was to avoid monopolies i think yeah yeah that, that was the reason they were they were they were terrified there was going to be a monopoly why were they so scared of that it seems a reasonable fear but was there, was there something that had happened before that uh, made them think that that might happen i think it was the gas I, I think there was worries about the gas i mean but you know i mean you know the water had always been um that had always been done by private companies and that had been a disaster as well so you know it was just um I don't know what it was. It was just uh, bad, bad politicians, I guess. Bad politics. Well, it, uh, maybe not, not awful. Though. Maybe the implementation, but maybe there isn't a right answer because uh, if we uh, think about the nationalised versions of some of the utilities, uh, we know that they could be pretty inefficient and costly. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and, and also, I mean, the other thing, it was done on a, on a region-by-region basis and a borough-by-borough basis. And so some boroughs did have an, a sort of, you know, de facto uh, borough-controlled electrical supply. I think in, actually around here they did. In, in Wandsworth they did because it was, it was almost it was communist at one point. But in other boroughs, you know, they, they had a different policy. And, and that was another problem, you know. Some, some places the council did run it. In other places it was done by private companies. The whole thing was hodgepodge. As indeed was the construction, of, well, not hodgepodge, but it came in stages. So the idea that this was always going to be a four-chimneyed building is uh, also a fallacy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the power station, I mean, it, it, the original plan, I think, was for it to have 32 chimneys. And in the plans, it looks just like a sort of very sort of bog-standard sort of utilitarian warehouse. And, and as the, sort of, the arguments grew about the pollution... You see in the scale, in the plans, how that changes and the sort of, you know, the, the scale of the building increases and the, and the number of chimneys reduces as they get to this point, which is what they finally arrived at. I mean, they did always want to have four chimneys, but the, the, because of the pollution, uh, the company were told they had to build it in stages. So they built half of the, half of the power station first and that had two chimneys. And when that worked and when that, when that was shown that it wasn't as polluting as they thought, they were allowed to build the second half. And the Second World War got in the way and delayed that considerably. 
Now, what I didn't know, and it's maybe understandable actually, because getting inside the building is quite an accomplishment, particularly now. But even back through time, not that many people have seen the interior, and the interior has been something to behold. But the interior of the two halves has differed considerably. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is this is something that's, that is unique about Battersea Power Station because it was built in two halves. So the first half was built from 1930, finished in about 1933, 1935. Then they began on the second half almost straight away, but that wasn't finished until 1955 because of the Second World War. So what you have in the two halves is an almost identical building, and if you look at it, you can't see a join. Um, you know, you can't see where the two halves came together. Um, but in the interiors, you can. So on the Battersea A, which is the um, which, which is which is the western side, um, you've got a beautiful Art Deco marble. You've got teak. It's incredibly luxurious. Um, on the on the right hand side, it's still it's still very striking, but it's much more utilitarian. It's sort of um, 1940s, it's uh, 1950s, some of it, um, and you've got two different treatments of exactly the same um, building, which is which is I don't think it happens anywhere else. We're focusing as well on the aesthetics, and that would get on the nerves of many of the people and indeed the, the architect was at pains to point out that the machinery was uh, a, a very important component of it as well oh yeah completely yeah i mean the machinery so in, in the middle you had all the all the turbines which which burn, all the boilers which which burnt the coal and then they they powered the turbines which were which were on the sides to it i mean it it, it was built to mirror the uh, the function of electricity so you burnt it in the middle and then you powered it in the end and on the very end you had the switches that sort of told you where the electricity went and and the machine well the machines are all gone they all came out um, when when the power station closed which was uh, oh, i've got the 70s in mind well again it, it happened in stages so the first half the uh, battersea a the western side that closed in 1975 and the second half limped on until 1983 so we're entering with that phase of history we're really entering the uh, the, the place where it all starts to get a bit silly in my mind some very extravagant plans for what could happen to the place but I'd hate to get to that without treating the growth of the artistic representations of the building because that's a fairly major component of it being an icon, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the power station became quite quickly, actually, a sort of an, an icon of London's skyline. And the very first thing I could find was on um, Alfred Hitchcock's film Sabotage, which is a 30s film, so it was just half the power station. That was the very first place I could see it in, in any film. But um, oh, I've got to rush out and see that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was then used... There's a film called High Treason that came out after the war, which is a great B-movie, and they actually filmed that. They appear to have filmed it inside the power station, certainly inside a power station, but they used lots of beautiful exterior shots of the power station. And again, that's about communist agents infiltrating um, infiltrating the city and closing down what was seen as one of the sort of most important buildings um, in, in the whole of London. I mean, uh, quite soon after it was finished... Um, in, in, in Parliament, when they, they were talking about the black shirts and the danger of the black shirts to democracy, they said that you know that they were terrified they might take they might take control of the three principal uh, buildings in London, which were Battersea Power Station, the BBC, and the Bank of England. And high treason kind of riffs on that. And then it appeared in it appeared in Beatles' film Help. It appears in films like Swinging Time. But obviously, the the, the best known uh, use of it um, in film or anywhere at all is Pink Floyd's um, Animals album cover, where they flew Algie, the giant pink pig. And to prove that the pigs are capable of independent flight. I want to ask, but I also want to leave that delicious story to uh, <laughs> readers of the book. We'll swerve briefly, if that's all right, because uh, mm. I, I do want to talk about the many, I think mostly failed plans for the 
power station, but turning to the book, Up in Smoke, listen, if you don't mind me saying so, you have a beautiful tome on your hands here. And this is your first one? Yeah, this is my first book. I've been a London writer for a long, long time. I used to write for Time Out. When the publisher told me he wanted me to write a book on Battersea Power Station, I kind of winced, actually, because um, doing a book is such a lot of effort and time. Um, I didn't really want to do it for that reason. But when he said that that no one has done Battersea Power Station, I just thought I had to do it. That's a a remarkable fact. I mean, are we sure about it? Yeah, so since this came out, um, a book of photographs appeared sort of around the same time, slightly before, actually. And then um, the... For which I'm sure you were so grateful. (laughs) Well, I I actually actually deliberately avoided looking at it because I just didn't want to... um, I didn't want to be influenced in any way by it. And there was a book that came out by... published by the um, the, the CEGB, which is the Central Electricity Generating Board. Um, They brought it out as a kind of um, memorial to the power station when it closed down which was a good book, um, very useful, but, you know, very hard to find and, and didn't really cover half the story, which is what happened after the power station closed down. So let's swing, I guess, into the early 80s. I can't help thinking of Mrs Thatcher at this point. Who, have I got a, I've, I've got this memory lodged in my brain. This is not something I've read yet in the book. I haven't got to that part. Did she fire a laser gun at Battersea Power Station, or have I made that up? Margaret Thatcher did fire the largest laser gun in Europe at Battersea Power Station. Well, why would she do that? Uh, well, who, who wouldn't? Um, <laughs> so this is, this is why I wanted to write the book, actually, um, to find out, you know, what had happened to this building for so long or what hadn't happened to this building for so long. You know, because as a Londoner, you pick up the Evening Standard, there'd always be a story, you know, Bassey Power Station's going to become this, it's going to look amazing, there'd be all these great pictures. And then, you know, nothing would happen. And then two years later, it would happen again with, with a different bunch of pictures and a different architect. And, you know, and I just, what kept happening? What kept going wrong? And that's what the book was about. Margaret Thatcher, so she got involved with the very first developer, really, a guy called John Broom, who ran Alton Towers. And he wanted to turn this into um, basically Alton Towers on Thames. And he was a uh, conservative. He, had, uh, he, was, he was personal friends of Margaret Thatcher. And he got Margaret Thatcher to come down to the launch of the Battersea, as I think it was to be called then. They were going to call it Chelsea Fun Palace, which is a much better name. But unfortunately not. Um, She came down to the launch and fired a laser gun, which set off uh, fireworks and attracted, I think, the attention of the local fire um, brigade because they didn't know that this was taking place at the time. Although some people suggested to me that John Broom was such a kind of showman, he might have done that quite deliberately to get even more attention in the newspapers the next day. Yeah, you'd have thought they'd have... Uh, well, particularly after the exploits in the 70s, you'd have thought they'd have uh, mentioned laser guns before. <laughs> you'd hope so, yeah. So, well, that's interesting what you say about those ideas that pop up in the papers, because what you never get, and what your book offers, is closure to those stories, because there's a great fanfare when they start, and then it all just uh, peters out, and, you know, maybe in the financial pages you'll get some small article about it being shelved, but you never really hear what happens to the idea. Yeah, yeah, you never hear that, and also you never hear, what, you know, why they didn't happen, you know, what were the problems, you know, what caused it to go wrong, and, and there are sort of, you know, the same things come up over and over again through all the different plans. I mean, one thing is there haven't been that many owners, and um, people think it's sort of, you know, change hands time after time after time. It kind of hasn't, you know. It, the first owner was actually a, he actually won a competition. It was called Sir David Roach. He won a competition to turn it into a house, to turn it into a theme park. And then John Broom came in and kind of took over his idea. So he was the second owner. Then John Broom sold to a Chinese consortium called Parkview. Then it went to an Irish consortium called um, Treasury. And now it's owned by, by some Malaysians, uh, the Malaysian Pension Fund, essentially. And they all came across the same problems, which are that a it's very hard to get here. Um, there's only one road, you've got the river and the railway line blocking you in. 
If you want to build an attraction that people come to, it's actually not very easy to get people here because you've got no tube. That, that was one problem always, you know, how are you going to get people here? Dealing with the transport implications and the parking implications, especially in the 80s when people, people thought they were going to drive everywhere. The other problem is it's really, really big. So, you know, you've got to do something really clever with that space that is going to fill it. Um, it's, th- it's three times bigger than Tay Modern, to give you an idea of how big it is. So you can't just turn it into a gallery. And the third problem was it costs an awful lot of money to fix the power station, which you're not going to recoup until you have been able to fix the power station and then build on the land around it to raise, raise the funds. Oh, nobody likes a long-term project. Exactly. That's always been the problem. And, and sort of chipping away at those issues is, is what's taken, you know, what, what is it, sort of 35 years. So other than the theme park, what other proposals have there been? So what other proposals were there? So the very first owner, David Roach, he said that what it really should be is a shopping centre. That was his idea. Yeah, I can kind of see that. And, you know, that's actually what it's almost going to become, you know, more or less. The other plans. So David Roach wanted to build a, um, wanted to build a theme park. Although when you look at his plans, it looks much more like a shopping centre than a theme park. <laughs> um, then Parkview came in and they wanted to build a casino here. They wanted to turn it into a massive cinema. Well, now, hold on. Before we go casino, I think we should have lingered a little longer on the theme park. Could, we, could we describe the theme park? Because it looks a bit rubbish to be honest. The theme park looked terrible. Um, the theme park was, it was kind of designed by this American company that really had no concept of... Um, Fun. Of, <laughs> well, also of British sensibility. So they, they wanted to um, theme it along kind of... Um, essentially colonial you know like you know that that was the idea it was going to be a colonial themed theme park and yeah, some of the ideas go well in south london exactly some of the ideas are so you know i mean i list them in the book but you know that they're, they're just cringeworthy what sort of attractions were they including oh, I, I, I can't remember anything? you know it was like you know it's it's almost like the equivalent of like a midget village you know it's you know an eskimo settlement you know whatever that is crass you can think of you know they thought about doing that any sort of national stereotype they found us they found a place for it in battersea power station we've got an echo here. So I, I realise I'm uh, parenthesising a, a parenthesis here, but we, this has echoes of something else that went before, doesn't it? Was there another yes. chapter in the, the history of this land? That yes, there was, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so, after the waterworks, this is around 1905, an American and a Canadian developer wanted to build something called um, Dream City here, which would have been, um, I guess, a sort of cross between a pleasure garden and something like White City or Earl's Court, sort of those kind of big sort of fun, fun places, really. And they wanted to build a massive illuminated tower and then various rides, sort of underwater rides, and also have a kind of colonial sort of ideas there. In its day, that should work, shouldn't it? It should have done, yeah. No one's really quite sure what happened. I mean, I, th- I think what happened is, um, that, you know, they, they, they got the plans, and I think they got their plans approved, but then White City appeared in about 90, you know, around the same time, very nearby, and I think that basically made it a sort of no, no go. Because yeah, we're at Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, of course, just just up the road, and uh, yeah. as, as we look at the skyline there, we can uh, be on the cranes. We can still for the one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I just see the eye there, so the idea of fairground attractions isn't uh, completely out of the question. Yeah, and the other thing is, on the other side of the road over there, you've got Battersea Park, and um, in the 19, uh, well, 40s and 50s, that, that was the site of one of London's biggest um, uh, theme parks again. It was a uh, massive roller coasters and all, all that. It was all part of the Festival of Britain site. In fact, that's actually where the idea for the theme park for Battersea Power Station first came from. One of the, an architect who, who remembered the fun fair at Battersea wanted to sort of recreate it inside inside the power station. Now, with all these different, not very fun, fun fairs, I've lost track. What happened to the broom idea? Well, broom... Well, the, um, the, the idea that broom took over us. Yeah, so, so broom's idea... Well, 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 broom didn't have as much money as he thought he did, and he certainly didn't have as much money to, to fix the power station. I mean, you, you sort of look at the... Um, when, when you look back at the newspapers, the sort of escalation of costs from, like, 10 million to 100 million in the course of about, sort of, five years, coupled with the crash in uh, 1988 was it 1988 1989 um, which you know wiped out the, the, the value of property in London anyway that left him um, he had to sell he, he sold he had to sell Alton Towers um, he, he you know he sold Alton Towers hanging on to the power station you know that, that was what he really thought would, would come good for him Oh, um, you, you know what? I've all, I don't know why I've got this idea, but I've always thought that the uh, maybe it's the cynicism of the, the public reception of these ideas. But I've always got the impression that the proposals for the uh, power station are somehow a little bit phony, and I don't know why. I've, well, why I think that there is always that. I mean, there always seems to be a basic distrust in the air. Yeah, no, there is, and I think that's partly because it never happened. Everyone I spoke to assured me they always wanted to have whatever plans they have come through i don't think john brew made any money you know he was declared bankrupt you know what he did with his own finances along the way i really don't know and you know i I couldn't get to him to ask him about it parkview certainly made money on it but they also spent quite a lot of money um and if they developed it they'd have stood to make an awful lot more money what were parkview doing so parkview came in so 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 john brew when he was searching for financing he went to hong kong um, he talked to Parkview. They liked the idea of um, owning this bit of land, um, which by you know, which was by now, uh, John Broom had bought more of the land around the power station, and, and every developer bought a little bit more of the land, and, and that's quite important because it goes from just being like you know one and a half acres to being about thirty acres, and it's the land around it that really has the value. That's, that's um, crucial. Whatever you're going to do, you've got to have access, parking, all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you can build stuff on it. You can build housing. You know, you don't have to deal with this sort of like moulding great power station. You can just build a you know, a load of, a bunch of, you can build whatever you think is going to make you a lot of money. So Parkview came in, and Parkview didn't do an awful lot for a very long time, um, as they were buying up bits of land and settling various legal disputes. Um, and they didn't do anything at all to the power station. They did want to put a cinema in. They wanted to uh, turn it into a sort of permanent home for Cirque du Soleil. There were various other ideas. One of the ideas was they wanted to put um, 
um, a single table restaurant in one of the chimneys and this would sort of rise through the course of the um, of the meal and then sort of pop out at the top when you had your main course and dessert and then sort of sink back down again but there were sort of problems about fire access and um, and going to, and where you went to the, where you would go to the toilet and, and presumably the cost of the meal <laughs> and the cost of the meal yeah the idea was they were going to auction off sort of four different meals during the course of the um, of the day so you could auction, you know you could you could buy breakfast brunch lunch or dinner depending on um, and you know and and it would be however you prepared you're prepared to spend uh, yeah, I, I don't need to be an economics expert to know that that's a silly idea. <laughs> well, this was, uh, this was uh, Victor Wang, the, 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 um, the owner of Parkview, and he was a kind of... Um, there was a family group, and he was the one who was most interested in Power Station. And, and architects told me that, you know, they'd sort of, you know, that they'd go to him with some plans, and he'd say, great, OK, we'll do that. And then, you know, they'd go to him again two weeks later, and he'd say, oh, that, you know, that, you showed me those ones last time. What's new? You know, he always wanted something new. So the architects were always coming up with like you know they're putting in boating lakes, putting in hotels, doing the, they're always doing something. And at no point was he ever prepared to say, "We're going to begin." I'm pretty sure I remember somebody telling me that the uh, the period in the 80s where all these decisions weren't quite being made or finance wasn't quite being found fast mm. enough, the, the building itself was deteriorating. Yeah, well, the building deteriorated quite quickly. I mean, first of all, you know, something I didn't realise until I did the book, buildings deteriorate power stations um, well, as, as they cool. Um, so as soon as you start turning off the, um, the boilers, it starts to cause problems to the building. But the, the real problem was that when John Broom came in to kind of, you know, get started, one thing he had to do was get the machinery out. And to get the machinery out, he had to get the roof off. So he took off the roof. Um, in the process of which one of the walls fell down and he pulled up half the machinery out the middle and then he didn't have any money to do anything to fix any of that and and so ever since then the power station hasn't had a roof hasn't had a um, hasn't had a wall um, and has been exposed to the elements i mean if you go inside it it's all being propped up by um you know by a huge amount of scaffolding and and the current um, developers the current architects are working on it are, are trying to work out how to actually fix the bricks without moving the scaffolding so they move the scaffolding they're worried the whole wall might fall down so yeah it's deteriorated terribly what's stopping the and not that i would welcome this as a solution but what is stopping a developer from just flattening the lot and building a bunch of flats on this prime land yeah what's stopping them well it was listed so the building was listed in uh, it was listed sort of you know quite unexpectedly I think in, in 1980 by Michael Hesseltine a, a 1930s building had been knocked down in the, on the Great Western Road and there were fears that a lot of other 1930s buildings were also going to be treated in the same way and a whole bunch of uh, buildings got listed at a very short notice in about a six week period and, and, um, and Batsy Power Station was one of them and the very senior minister in the Thatcher government protected a monument to fossil fuel burning yeah absolutely and, um, and I was told that, that one of the rumours doing, doing the rounds was that um, Hesseltine only listed the power station to tip off Margaret Thatcher because she hated the power station and he hated her um, what sort of access have you been able to achieve, then, both literal and in terms of who you've been able to speak to for putting this history together? To, to, to pull the book together, I spoke to um, most of the previous owners, um, lots of different architects, lots of people at Wandsworth, including the three leaders of, of Wandsworth Council at the time. I spoke to the local MP. Um, I spoke to people who worked there. Um, I spoke to people who, who photographed Pink Floyd's balloon escapade there. Now, I, can't, I can understand why they'd be willing to talk to you, keen to talk to you, and it sounds as though there's all sorts of uh, different versions of those stories. But some of these projects clearly ended in the doldrums. I wonder why they'd be 
wanting to talk about? I think a lot of them, they spent a lot of time working on it. A lot of the architects especially. I mean, architects are used to, I think, you know, coming up with ideas that never get built. I think, you know, um, it's, it's a major part of what they do. And, and so to have someone interested in, in their plans and then to talk about them again... Um, you know, to show an interest. No, you know, no one had really talked to you know the original architects or the original, the, you know, the guy who won the very first competition, so David Roach. No one had ever spoken to him about the power station, as far as I can tell. I mean, he was very eager also to put over the side, his side of um, the story in his quite amusing dispute with John Broom, um, which ended with Broom uh, taking control of the consortium. Um, so, I mean, and the only person who really wouldn't speak was John Broom, um, and I think he was. Um, you know, at the time, he was seen as like one of the great shining lights of British industry. Margaret Thatcher talked about him in that way. He was awarded um, an OBE or an MBE or a CBE, one of them or other. Um, he was equivalent of someone like, you know, Alan Sugar, you know, a very prominent, very flamboyant businessman. And, and to go, uh, you know, to be so publicly humiliated in the, in, by going bankrupt over Bassey Power Station, to fail, you know, in quite a dramatic way. I don't think he's ever quite got over that. Just on a technical issue, there's a wry side to your writing that I rather like. When you represent certain people who present their ideas using superlatives, you're quite quite keen to damp them down a little bit. But with that in mind, where you've got these disputes where people have got very different versions of, of things mm. and uh, perhaps you're not able to speak to some of the parties, how do you go about choosing a version that you think is correct? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, th- th- that was really the issue with, with, with Broom's time especially, but also with Parkview. I mean, one thing I did is I spoke to the, um, the campaigners and, and they have a, you know, the people who've been lobbying all of the developers all the time saying, we don't like anything you're ever going to do. And obviously they've got very strong and very interesting opinions and you have to balance all those opinions together. I mean, as a journalist, one thing I always try and do is not really take sides too obviously I don't want to be a polemicist I am at the very end of the book where I think it's worth there's something to be said but you, you just got to present people's cases and then you know I hope that the reader can you know can sort of judge maybe some truth in it I mean you've also got the problem that you know when you're writing about history and, and recent history um, relying on people's memories which is what I did for a lot of this it, it, it's interesting because you get a, a level of detail and emotional um, that you don't get from documents but also people's memories are flawed and you know and there are times when you interview someone and you know that what they're telling you isn't quite right so that's always an issue you know when you're using people's first-hand recollections because you're in south london right yeah 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 how has your understanding of the area and the, the area surrounding it maybe been altered by what you've learned yeah well again very um I didn't really know much about... I mean, I knew the power station. I used to live in... Um, I was brought up in, in Athens suburbs around Sutton. Um, I'd get the train into Victoria um, whenever I came into London. And the power station was the kind of building that you'd see from the side of the um, railway line that, that said, you are now not in the suburbs. You know, you are now in London. You know, you don't get this in Cheam. And, and that was that, always... That's a perfect slogan. You've, you've nailed it there. That should be in big uh, illuminated letters over the entrance to the new power station. <laughs> that, that, that was always, my, um, that was always my, 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 um, my attraction to the building. You know, it just stood out so incredibly, especially at the time when it was sort of surrounded. There was nothing around it. It was just this kind of quite proud sort of... Like, it, was, it looked like a castle as well. It was like the fact that it looked like a castle. Um, and right by the river, you know, it, it, was a, it was a really dramatic thing to see as you came into London. Um, but to actually get to it, I never really had got, gone round the, you know, gone round its feet because it's very hard to get here. So my knowledge of the area and how it all tied up, I, I didn't really have very much of that until I began on the book, and I certainly didn't really um, have a have a grasp of 
how, how major the entire Nine Elms project is, which is going all the way from um, the power station down to Vauxhall, a sort of you know a sort of string of cranes and new new builds that are going up um, and are going to make this one of the biggest. Uh, biggest new towns in, in, in central London. Well, I mean, you're, not, you're not kidding. I mean, you've brought us right back to where we started, and uh, the level of development here is just beyond anything I've ever seen. When I was here last, I think it was to visit the cats and dogs home, and I remember looking at the power station in glorious isolation and thinking, what a beautiful structure it is. Well, it's, it's hidden from almost every angle now by structures that have been recently built. And we can see more cranes here than I think I've uh, seen in the last week put together. It's, it's quite astonishing. And the, the plan for it is what, really? Yeah, I mean, it looks like the London docks or something, doesn't it? Those old pictures yeah. of the docks. So let, let, let's, sort of back, let's sort of sort of um, sort of backpedal a tiny bit here to talk about how we got to this point. So after Parkview successfully submitted their third planning application, they then sold to an Irish developer called Treasury. And Treasury came in. And they just said, look, the only way you're going to make money out of this, you're not going to make any money doing any of um, Parkview's sort of like um, sort of crazy ideas. The only way you're going to make money is by building a lot of housing all, all around the site and turn the power station into housing as well, which had never really been considered before. Treasury uh, got planning um, agreed very quickly. And Treasury also lobbied for the opening of an extension of the Northern Line, which is, which is also happening around here. Um, and Treasury were helped massively by the fact the American Embassy had just decided to move into the area. And, and that's a step change there. Suddenly, uh, the, whole area, the, the whole area opens up. Battersea Power Station is, is a viable concern. Treasury's problem is they do all this in around 2008. And um, just as Ireland... Uh, oh, no. Yeah, exactly. So Treasury go bankrupt. The power station is taken over by the banks and is for the first time um, actually put out on the open market. And there are two major plans, really. There is a, the Mal- a Malaysian consortium who want to essentially do what Treasury have agreed to do, which is what we have now. And the other idea is Roman Abramovich, who wants to build um, a football ground here. He wants to turn it into Chelsea's new ground, which was never really going to happen because it would have involved knocking down part of the building. Um, and Wandsworth didn't want a football ground on this site because it would not have been... It wasn't what they were after. Does that comfortably contain a football pitch? No, exactly. So you'd have to knock one of the walls down mm. to sort of jam the stadium into something. It would have looked amazing if they'd you know, if been able to do it, but it was never, ever, ever going to happen. And I think Chelsea knew all along. I think for Chelsea it was just a way of saying, look, we're serious about, uh, about development or about getting a bigger ground. Well, what I'm finding surprising in what you said is that nobody before Parkview had considered turning it into houses. Well, <laughs> the obvious thing, really. Yeah, it does. I mean, again, it's... Um, Flats, I should say. Again, let, let's go right back to the very beginning. So in 1983, when, when they were working on what to do with it, they held a competition saying, um, and anyone was allowed to enter, what are you going to do with it? And one of the schemes wants to turn it into um, a sort of um, mixed-use residential luxury scheme, but very high-end housing, some hotels and some retail. What we're having now, essentially, you know, that, that was turned down at the time because it wasn't really what was felt... Would, it wouldn't bring anything to the people of Battersea. It was not... You say it was rejected on that basis. You know, at the time in 1983, the concern was employment. That was the real big driver in London for anything. You know, is this going to bring jobs to the area? Which is why a leisure idea was what worked. Now, residential is what works. And there were various blocks. You know, they could, they weren't allowed to build a lot of housing at first, but those all got relaxed. A lot of things have been relaxed around here. You know, at first you weren't allowed to build 
Uh, you, you couldn't build higher than the, than the walls. Now you can build up to the base of the chimneys. Yeah, we can um, see one section of what, what looks like the city wall around a. If, if the power station itself is a citadel, mm-hmm. then it looks as though this wall is going to conceal all of the brick part of the power station. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this is a very first residential section opening. I mean, the other thing they were allowed to do, the Malaysians, was, and I think Treasury got this agreed as well. They were allowed to build and sell apartments before they fixed the power station which is crucial because that puts money into the scheme. Um, and what they've done is they've built this, you know, right alongside the... Um, uh, th- th- this blocks the old view I used to have, basically, from, from the train station. You can't see Battersea Power Station now from that train line. And, and you know, this is only the start of it. You know, there, there are going to be two big schemes going up right in front of where we're looking at now, so this view will soon be blocked. And then there'll be more going on the other side. It's a long, long scheme. I mean, the other reason why no-one built residential here is because, you know, who the hell would want to live, you know? <laughs> in this site, you know, hemmed in between a, a mouldy power station and a train line. You know, at the time, it was almost inconceivable that anyone would choose to live here. But that was 30 years ago. Things have changed. Well, the, the thing that it seems to me has changed is the idea of buying somewhere without necessarily having any intention of living there. And I'm, I'm going to ask this with a sense of weary inevitability over me. The flats that are being sold here, are they uh, nice, affordable houses for key workers and uh, other people who need to live somewhere in London, or are they being marketed overseas to be rented out? Well, yes, I think you can probably guess the answer to that. <laughs> this is London in, t- in 2017 we're talking. Um, <clears throat> there there's is, there a, there's is a some... handy bridge just over here that the population of London could actually live under. <laughs> there is some affordable housing, but, um, but I think they've actually moved it off the site now. They've actually moved it to somewhere else. It's kind of, I think, across the road from the power station. Glasgow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, you know, you talk to the, developing, the, the developers here and they will say they marketed it to Londoners first. 40% of their owners have British passports. You know, they have no idea what's going to happen, you know, once these things go into the, once, once these things hit the market. I think they do know what's going to happen. <sighs> they just want to make money, you know, and, and, um, and this is how you make money in London. The problem is when there is so much residential going up in this small area, you know, whether you're going to be able to maintain the sort of prices that they are hoping for. Well, this goes beyond your, your immediate area of focus, but... All of this other development that we can see around us, have you any idea if any of this is likely to be for the Commonwealth Garden London? I think we can probably safely assume it won't be. I mean, you know, the idea of social housing is now, um, you know, effectively um, it's dead. You know, no one even considers it. They talk about affordable housing, which is not the same thing at all. I mean, you know, you can see there is social housing sort of, you know, all around, well, not quite all around us, but, you know, that sort of social housing that, that, that is behind us here is never going to be built in London um, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, the, the great irony, of course, is that, is that 20 years ago also, you know, rich people wouldn't live in tower blocks, you know, for God's sake. The idea of them living in high-rise, you know, it was just not on. But now it's incredibly um, desirable and aspirational. Whether these things will actually be occupied, who knows? I mean, it's quite, it's quite important to, to, to the power station company that there are people here because they're building a lot of... Re- I mean, you know, the power station itself is going to be a lot of leisure and retail... There's going to be some um, very, very expensive flats as well. But it's mainly going to be retail. And they really need people on the ground here for that to work. Otherwise, they're going to create yet another, you know, solar... You know, I don't think developers deliberately want to create soulless environments. But that's essentially what we almost always have. There are very few that work. I think King's Cross maybe works. Whether Battersea works or not, I don't know. What will help Battersea massively... Um, is the fact that Apple are going to move their offices here. And that happened more, you know, since I completed the book. But it's a, quite, a major, um, it's quite a major part of the story, I think. 
And it's where we must leave the story for today. We've uh, we've run to the end of the time. I sense that this story could uh, could keep going forever, really. Um, certainly the, the site itself will continue to throw up new and exciting things. And my suspicion, I've got to say, I don't know if you remember in the news several years ago, there was somebody who threw up a few enormous haystacks outside of his home and secretly built an extravagant house that was like a castle yes. and uh, he didn't have the correct planning permission for it. And I'm just wondering if they could get away with building this ring of apartments around the place and then do who knows what inside. <laughs> and just knock it down quietly. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the book, I kind of fantasise, you know, after having a bit of a rant about, about the, you know, the, the housing situation in London and, and who these are being built for, I do fantasise that, you know, one thing that fascinates me about new builds in London is that they don't actually have a very long shelf life. They last about 30 years. You know, and I could imagine that you know, maybe in 50 years' time, you know, all these steel and glass buildings will have, will have disappeared, but Battery Power Station will still be there, you know, and once again, for everyone in London to actually see, rather than, rather than have, it, have their views blocked. Well, the book that puts uh, even more flesh on these bones is Up in Smoke by Peter Watts, published by Paradise Road, and we can expect more great things from both, I hope. If people want to hear more from you, Peter... Where can they do so? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm also on Twitter. I'm Peter underscore Watts on Twitter. And also I've got a blog. It's a Great When, great W-E-N, as a William Cobbett's uh, description of London as the Great When, uh, where I blog mainly about London, quite a lot about Bastille Power Station, um, but about all kinds of things that interest me um, about uh, this wonderful city. Peter Watts, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Peter Watts. Thanks to, to Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.